Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static. I'm uh, very pleased to be joined by my colleague, Janine Yunus. Uh, we've talked about this before, and I guess it's gotten a reasonable amount of press, Janine, which is the Biden v. Missouri case. And we were other way around. Uh, excuse me, Missouri <laughs> v. Biden. Yeah, I keep saying that. Missouri v. Biden, which is bought by Louisiana and Missouri uh, attorney generals. But we joined it with our clients, and I think we've discussed it before, but we've had a kind of fun development this week, and we've amended the complaint. So, Janine, why are we amending the complaint? What's going on? Well, we got a lot of discovery pursuant to the judge's order. So that means, you know, uh, we get documents and other um, information from the defendants. And that uh, information showed, you know, a high level of coordination between the federal government and tech companies in terms of censoring Americans who had different points of view on uh, COVID, the election. Um, we're only representing clients about COVID, but uh, the broader lawsuit the attorneys general are bringing uh, encompasses the 2020 election, uh, Hunter Biden laptop story. And uh, so we're including this in the new, um, in the amended complaint and adding defendants to based on what we learned. So, yeah. And you said you got it from the defendant, but not all this was from the defendant. That's true. Was that's it? true. So the, there, there were third parties in this case who are, you know, who you'd expect. It was uh, uh, Facebook and the and uh, Twitter, Twitter and LinkedIn and YouTube, yeah, YouTube, right. And so uh, we've been negotiating with well, the AG really has, and and um, on what they're going to turn over. And it, I think it was it was curious to me that uh, the government says, oh, we don't have that, or you got to go get that from other people, or it doesn't exist or something. And, right. then, and then what happens? It, <laughs> it turned out that, you know, that stuff the government was saying wasn't there was there. And also they had named a more limited number of agencies and federal officials involved in this. Based on what we got from the tech companies, we learned there were many more involved. So now we know of at least 11 federal agencies and uh, about 80 federal officials, but there could be more. We keep learning more and more. And and all these people are talking to the tech companies about what they can and cannot pu publish on their websites? That's right. Yeah. So they're telling the tech companies, you know, you should take this down. It's it's misinformation or disinformation. Um, and, you know, some of it is about, uh, um, you know, things like the vaccine has a microchip and stuff like that, but then it seems implausible <laughs> claims, you're saying. Implausible, yeah, what yeah. might I say. But then it starts to seep into territory of, you know, people saying that uh, five to 11 year olds don't need the vaccine or they don't think masks are very effective at stopping COVID. Um, All of with links to the scientific background. The, right. the one I always think of is that well, don't we have uh, evidence of somebody being thrown off Twitter? at the government's behest for putting a link to the National Institute of Health website about something? I think that's right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so if the National Institute of Health puts it on their website, that's okay. But if you find something in there that supports your argument about the response, the proper response to the pandemic, and you put it up there, then you're out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, 
Yeah, it's it's uh, quite astonishing, really. Um, the you know one of the things I think is the most is interesting about the the situation, and it's probably the area I can't quite figure out is you do have, especially related to the election, you do sometimes have what's happening. State and local uh, government officials are contacting people in DHS and saying they think that uh, this is election misinformation. And then DHS will contact someone at Facebook or Twitter and say, can you remove this post? But now, why some, DHS? Um, because this is considered a national security issue, interference with the election. So they think these are Russians doing this. Well, somebody like that. so that's the interesting part. So some of it, you know, is they think they'll say something like this. Seem, we think this is a Russian bot. You know, we've traced. The, I don't know. I'm not very good with technology, but we've traced the whatever. Yes. <laughs> and or and it's someone with five followers who got 20,000 retweets in an hour. So that seems implausible, you know, absent like it being a bot farm where they're purposely trying to do this to sow discord or, or turn the election a certain way. So that's, you know, that's obviously something that's a problem and you can understand why national security agencies would be involved. But then you have, you know, some guy in Georgia says, I think Trump won this district and they're saying this post should be taken down. So I think it's an interesting question. Like, how do you, how do you define that boundary? Um, and I don't think it's so difficult. I mean, what you're, what the difference is, you're not censoring the first kind based on content. You're identifying what you, you know, maybe sometimes they're wrong, but at least, you know, they're making a good faith effort to identify accounts that they think are part of a, a foreign uh, attempt to interfere with the election versus somebody who's saying something that the government doesn't think is true. And right. I think, so I don't think it's that difficult. To, yeah, it's uh, the source rather than the statement. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and and um, I do think, because God knows Russia doesn't let our stuff you know, we can't yeah. say, hmm, I think perhaps this was a wrong move on Vladimir Putin's part. And, uh, sure, they'll put that right in Pravda. Um, but but uh, all right, so put that aside for a second. It does strike me as uh, somewhat newsworthy that the government is fighting this so hard that we don't we don't have this, we don't have that, and and the the um, social media folks are saying, well, here's our email. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It, that is interesting, and I think um, it 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 is. Um, I don't know how the I don't know how the court will take this. Uh, Jeannie and I are in this case. We'll see what happens. But I but I do think that. Uh, what do you make? Because um, you know, <laughs> we've we've sued Dr. Fauci, and we don't have we have any of his emails. We do not. <laughs> so that's a very interesting. So we uh, had sought specifically in the second round of discovery, uh, his communications. And the claim is from the White House is that there is nothing that uh, fits this, which doesn't seem to be consistent with some of the discovery that we've gotten from Facebook uh, at this point, just yeah. Facebook, yeah. Yeah, so we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, he's, he is 80 years old. It may be that he doesn't email, but it does seem <laughs> to me that there, if there's no contacts, uh, that would strike me as odd because Zuckerberg is always bragging on how he's talking to Fauci. Right? Yeah, yeah. And we <laughs> That's do, public. He's all over the place. Uh, exactly. And we do have emails um, where Fauci and Zuckerberg are exchanging phone numbers and coordinating conversations. Now it's possible. Uh, now I can't quite recall. It might be like a secretary or someone doing it on Fauci's behalf, but um, you know, still. <laughs> and so, um, all right, how... Uh, how extensive are these emails? Is this like a one-off or two-off? How, how, what happens? It's like a sixteen thousand off. Sixteen thousand. No, we have a, yeah, we have about uh, over fifteen thousand pages, um, and you know, I don't know exactly how many emails that is, but it's a lot. So it's a lot, and it's across uh, you know 
all of these agencies sort of very, some of them very different. DHS, so you mentioned DHS and we know we sued, uh, we sued the uh, Surgeon General, right? right. Who, and, yeah. And I don't even know where he gets the power to do anything, but such is <laughs> yeah, life. That's the question. Go on. So who else? Uh, so we have uh, HHS, you know, agencies within it, such as CDC, NIH, um, then DHS, CISA uh, has a lot to do with it. That's the cybersecurity sub agency of DHS, uh, the FBI. So the FBI is a new, is new actually defendant based on the information that we got. Um, some of which was, you know, on uh, Joe Rogan's show, where he, <laughs> so that that actually spurred some. Uh... Well, I saw it. Maybe you follow you follow this closer than I did, but I I saw some headline that they were trying to get some government person on Joe Rogan to tell. Did, have you seen? This? No, I didn't I'll, see that. I'll move yeah. on. <laughs> I don't follow it close enough, but I I guess. Uh, I don't, I don't listen to them, but I understand everyone else does. So I don't, yeah, I've never listened to them myself. They're too long. <laughs> can't do a three hour podcast. <laughs> but um, so uh, what, what, what's happening now? So this was for a preliminary injunction. That's right. Yeah. Tell, what, tell the what, what are the plaintiffs asking for as far as the preliminary injunction? What, the, what, what's supposed to happen? The uh, plaintiffs are basically asking for sort of emergency relief. Um, you know, they're saying that their constitutional rights are being violated. And if it's not stopped immediately, they'll be harmed irreparably. And a violation of your constitutional rights, especially First Amendment rights, is considered an irreparable harm. So um, it's sort of unusual for a court to order discovery at that stage. And, you know, this has made things take longer. So it kind of <laughs> is. Uh, but, you know, they want the court... A, to basically say, okay, this looks like a constitutional violation. The government can't do this. Um, while it's being sorted out, um, we're, you know, we're telling the government they can't be involved with telling te tech companies what to do in terms of censoring people based on their perspectives. Right. And there's, are they still doing it? I mean, there's election coming up. Are they still doing this to tech companies? I don't, I mean, I assume so. We obviously, you know, we don't have emails from yesterday, <laughs> but I, uh, it would surprise me if they weren't. Um, and, you know, we know there was this new, um, the latest thing was the American Medical Association, American Association of Pediatrics, wrote a letter to Merrick Garland asking him to take action against people who are spreading, quote unquote, misinformation uh, about transgenderism, especially with respect to children. So I imagine that this. I bet you they don't like the truth on that either. Yeah. Right. So, I, yeah. So it is it is um, interesting uh, what what the government will do. And 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 how how extensive these contacts are but uh if the if the court orders them to stop doing this yeah don't tell the the uh tech companies what to put on their their spot you know on their platforms except you can inform them about foreign penetration yeah. let's say i've said something like that how would we monitor that I mean, that's a good question. <laughs> and I think it's kind of open at this point. I guess we sort of have to trust that the government <laughs> will listen to the court. I'm and totally so in the business of trusting <laughs> them. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I do. Many, but there's a little, there, there's a lot of harshness that comes with that. Yeah. Well, and to be, I mean, we're also, we're not saying that they can't have any, uh, can't tell the tech companies at all have any coordination. So, you know, some of these emails are the government telling the tech companies like, can you help us uh, increase vaccine uptake by posting, you know, this whatever? And that's not here's information we'd like to put yeah. on. Which and it's if the different. tech, yeah, that's exactly. If the tech companies want to do that, um, that's not a First Amendment issue. The government has its own First Amendment right to right. try to convey its message. So that's you know not something we're contesting at all.
And uh, so I will look forward to hearing more about this in the future. Thank you. Welcome back to Administrative Static. This is John Vecchioni, and I am joined by Carol Rollins, uh, my colleague here at NCLA, who has filed an amicus brief in United States v. Vargas, dealing with well, uh, something that we deal with a lot here, which is deference of the courts to administrative agencies' decisions rather than making uh, independent review of the law on their own. Carol, what's this, what's this, what's this case about, and why did we file an amicus? Uh, so this is about a very specific, specific type of deference called Stinson deference. And follow me along because it is deference to the U.S. Sentencing Commission's commentary to the sentencing guidelines. All right. So let me break that down for a second because I used to be an expert on the sentencing guidelines, which I, uh, I, I am no longer because I, I stopped doing criminal. But so the sentencing guidelines are was an effort by Congress to make sentencing uniform to, to, no matter who the judge was. And so they made certain guidelines that, that, that were made by, an, uh, uh, not Congress, but a, uh, a bureau basically. And there's various, it's makeup, doesn't matter now. It's, but a, it's, it's, a, it's an independent sub-agency of the right. judici judicial uh, ju branch. Judicial branch. And then, so they make these, these uh, sentencing guidelines, which the Supreme Court has said are not binding law, okay? Because there, there was a long fight over this. It went on for like 25 years. But now they've said that, but they this agency being judges, they like footnotes. And uh, well, some don't, judges don't, but the lawyers do. So they have commentaries. So just like Blackstone has commentaries, the, uh, the sentencing guidelines have commentaries where they say how they think what they already wrote in the guidelines ought to be interpreted, right? Exactly. And the way we get to Stinson is uh, through what we usually call our seminal rock deference. It's now sometimes called Kaiser deference, which is how we got into this current situation. And what that means is, is that courts have sort of generally deferred to an agency's reasonable reading of its own genuinely ambiguous regulations. I mean, you, essentially the courts say, well, if you wrote something really ambiguous and then you tell us later on what you think about it, we're gonna defer to you. I mean, I would say that's a little bit hogwash and crazy, but here we are. Um, so when the Supreme Court heard Kaiser back in 2018, they said, we're not gonna overrule our and Seminole Rock, but what we are gonna do is say, when we say genuinely ambiguous, we mean genuinely ambiguous. And that's a, that's a direct line from um, the opinion. And what they went on to say is you have to open up the toolkit of statutory interpretation tools. And once you've exhausted all of those, if the regulation is still ambiguous, then we're going to permit deference. And what has cropped up since then is a various uh, incarcerated individuals who are coming up in sort of post-sentencing position saying, 
well, hey, wait a minute. Under Kaiser, um, we need to relook at stints and deference, right? Because it's stints and deference is, is sort of a descendant of it um, or, or a different shade of it in a particular scenario. And what happens that I think is particularly pernicious, and I think what has caused a lot of courts to sit upright and say, hey, wait a minute, is that the impact for certain types of crimes, crimes we call incohate crimes, crimes that are sort of part of something else, they're incomplete on their own, um, aiding and abetting, conspiracy, attempt, possession. Um, the commentary of the guidelines has read these as being part of a controlled substance account, which goes into the career offender guideline, which allows for longer, more severe sentencing. So essentially crimes that aren't actually contemplated as having these types of crimes under the right reading, or I should say under the reading that's being done under Stinson have led to stricter sentences. And one of the things that the Sixth Circuit said about a year or two ago was, you know, when we see stricter sentences, alarm bells should be going off, right? Because Congress not only writes the law, but certainly when it comes to criminalization of behavior and penalization, that is something that is absolutely in the ambit of Congress. And we can't have the other branches um, extending sentences or penalizing behavior in ways that Congress didn't intend. And that's sort of the, the net effect of Stinson. Um, and so- In this in this context. In, the, in this context, particularly for incohate crimes because the actual guideline- What's an incohate crime? Why don't we give me an example or an idea of what that means? Right, so incohate crimes are ones that are steps towards the commission of another crime. So you hear aiding and abetting, um, attempt. In this instance, Mr. Vargas was convicted of conspiracy. Um, and I believe his prior uh, criminal convictions, which take which are factored into in the sentencing guidelines under the, the career offender guideline, um, were, I, I believe some of them were for possession, but I think others were conspiracy crimes. There are all these incohate crimes. And so what ends up happening is that when they're doing this calculation, while he has a series of incohate crimes, he's being treated as though he had done the primary crime. He's getting a much stricter sentence essentially being penalized for crimes he didn't commit under the commentary, under the guideline. Um, and so from a due process standpoint, that's problematic from a separation of powers issue, non-delegation, you name it, there's a ton of issues. All the standards issues that come up with deference are sort of added at another level instance in deference because we're talking about people's life and liberty. Got it. And so we put, we put in this amicus brief in the Fifth Circuit, in the Fifth Circuit. And it's on Bonk? On Bonk. Now, we also put one in in Moses, right? A while ago, if I'm not mistaken. Back in the spring. So there's this oddity that's gone on. So the Third and Sixth Circuit over the past few years on Bonk have said Kaiser absolutely applies. Um, and they've rejected the app, you know, this determination that incohate crimes qualify under the sentencing guidelines. Um, and so this is sort of the march forward. This is where things are going. Back in January, in what I think folks in general would say is odd, but certainly folks that watch this, is the Fourth Circuit, two different panels within 15 days of each other, issued completely opposite positions about stints and deference. The first panel said, yes, Kaiser does apply and sort of followed the path that uh, the Third and Sixth Circuit did. And then the later panel uh, went completely the opposite direction. And so... There's this this issue where, and, and then they didn't go on bonk. 
and they didn't go on bonk. So, so Mo Campbell is the first case. Moses is the second. We had done a uh, amicus brief in Moses. Um, and then that was for the en banc. They decided not to. Moses is now has a cert petition before the Supreme Court asking the court to review this. And this is not the first cert petition to go up on this issue. NCLA had one in a case, I believe, called uh, Broadway a year and a half, two years ago, along with other cases coming out of other circuits. I think the Tab case out of the Second Circuit and a handful of others, the court rejected them all. Um, but I think that the Moses case is interesting because you have two separate panels saying diametrically opposed views. Um, and back about two weeks ago, the Supreme Court called for the government to respond. I mean, so- Solicitor General? Uh, yeah. And so, you know, for folks out there that aren't familiar with Supreme Court practice, is if I file a cert petition, the other side does not have to respond. If the court is interested in it, they can then order you to respond. Um, and so I think a lot of people, when they saw that perked up and same thing as with the Fifth Circuit agreeing to go on bonk in this Vargas case, is they said, oh, wait, hey, what's going on here? Especially as we've seen that the, the, the progress that has been made in this area is all towards at least the application of Kaiser to these types, if not the outright rejection of stints and deference. Yeah, and uh, and it is in the criminal context. So you do have that sort of background of lenity, as you were saying mm -hmm. about, if you're gonna put people in the crossbar hotel, you better make sure that Congress had a worse say in it. And it's interesting that you raise um, lenity because I think it's something that myself and others have talked about on the show, but this rule of lenity is, you know, older than the United States. So they say it came over on the boat with us. And the idea is that if we have an ambiguous criminal statute, we are going to construe it in favor of the accused. Um, and, and that's just how it operates. Um, and so Stinson does the exact opposite. And Stinson directs courts to do the exact opposite. So what we argue, at least in our amicus brief, um, because it doesn't necessarily always come up on the, the side of, of the defendant, is, and by the way, courts, for all the reasons that we think Kaiser does apply, um, the rule of lenity is still here and it plays a role. And I think that that's certainly a voice we've led to the debate um, organizationally of saying this is a consideration that needs to be made. I think um, both the sixth and uh, certainly the third circuit and Judge Beavis's concurrence um, relied heavily on, on the rule of lenity and these types of considerations about uh, freedom and independence of, of the body and, and liberty interests that all play into this. You know, I do wonder, uh, Justice Breyer has left the bench and um, and he was the great champion of the guidelines and the, and, and the commentary. And he, he it was kind of his baby. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's not going to be around for this one. I don't know uh, Justice Jackson's view on any of this stuff. So we will we will we will hopefully they'll take one of these and we'll get some kind of reading one way or the other. Well, and I, I think that that's, that's an interesting point because obviously the Supreme Court bench has, has changed. Um, and something that's worth noting is that the, the two concurrences that are really leading this, the, the Sixth Circuit concurrence by Judge Thapar and the Third Circuit concurrence by Judge Bebas that are very, I commend them to anybody that's interested in this issue. They are thoughtful historical arguments of how we got here. Um, they're sort of seen as leading the conservative libertarian judicial thought, particularly on these issues. So the one thing that's interesting about Stinson deference is it's not something that cuts on one side or the other. 
it cuts across. Um, but to your point, there are some, you know, folks out there um, and certainly some members of, of the bench and bar who still very much believe in the sentencing guidelines and have particular views about um, how that operates. And so you do get weird lineups on, on these issues, depending on where, where people come from in their careers. Um, and it's just an interesting thing to watch because I think that you can look at it two ways. You can look at it as part of the continuing watershed movement away from agency equally see it as a one-off well let's hope it's the water let's hope it's the first one thanks for joining me Karen. Okay. i know he's a pleasure